Our passage this morning for the sermon is from James chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verse 12. James chapter 5, verse 12. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Our Lord, our God, we pray again, be with us during this time, Lord. This is your holy word. Lord, help me and help us to hear it clearly and to apply it to our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, as you should have noted from... The announcements this morning, uh, this is a, uh, I'm, my name is Harold Wright, I'm one of the elders here at Providence Reformed Church, and Travis, who is normally teaching through the book of Malachi, is on vacation, but for you regulars, you know that Jason and I have been working through the letter of James to the churches, and today we come to the final chapter, and halfway through the final chapter, in, in chapter 5, verse 12. But just as a way, and we're going to specifically be looking today at the theme of oath-taking and speaking truth, okay? Speaking the truth simply is the theme of the message today. So you'll recall, for those of you who have studied James, that James's theme throughout the book of, of his epistle to the churches is one of Righteousness coming from the Lord should reveal itself to the believers in what? Good works. It's a message about walking the walk, talking the talk, and doing good works that God has prepared for us to do. He makes these bold statements like in chapter 2, verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And then he says, can, can that faith save him? And he makes the statement that faith apart from works is dead. So the theme that we see throughout the book of James is that we should, as genuine Christians saved by the grace of God, exhibit good works in our life. And he gives us some godly Examples of how to apply what he talks about being the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. He gives us these practical advice and examples of what godly wisdom applied to our lives looks like, which results in good works. So just as a quick review of some of that that we've looked at in the first four chapters, let me, let me list them out for you. First of all, he exhorts the believers to be doers of the word and not just hearers. He exhorts them to consider it pure joy when they face trials of many kinds. He tells us that good works look like taking care of orphans and widows and their trouble. He tells us to be very careful in how we speak, that we use our tongues not as instruments of evil, as he says, like fire, but as instruments for good. He tells us to be careful that we don't treat people with favoritism, that we don't show favoritism to people based on their status in this life. He warns us to avoid bitter jealousies 
and selfish ambition that he tells us are the cause for our quarrels amongst ourselves and our strife. And then he tells us about boasting. And he warns us, says, don't boast about the future and what you're going to do arrogantly. But he says instead that it's the Lord's will that always determines our future. So we should have a humble attitude about our plans and about the future. And now we come to chapter 5. The first section in chapter 5, if you will recall, James is telling the believers in the first century church who were being persecuted severely, right? They were facing many kinds of trials and they were suffering under these trials and he tells them to be patient in their suffering and to remain steadfast in the hope that they had in the return of the Lord, the second coming of the Lord. And now we get to our verse today in verse 12. And James starts off with this phrase. He says, above all. Now, I just want to quickly clarify that what I think that he's saying here is not that this is going to be the most important thing that I've said. It's all important. This is really ought to be looked at as a way to say him saying finally or in conclusion. This is what he has to say. and This is how he starts his really three-part conclusion to, the, to his book, to his letter. And we're just going to be looking at the first part today about oaths. So he says that we should avoid swearing an oath, right? So I thought the first thing we ought to do is define what an oath is. I'll just give you the dictionary version. An oath is a solemn appeal to a deity or to some revered person or thing to witness one's determination to speak the truth or to keep a promise. So it was used for two things, to witness that you're speaking the truth or that you're going to do what you say you're going to do in the future. That's a promise. So at first reading of this verse, it may just seem like James is giving us a prohibition against all oath taking and all swearing. And some people have applied it that way, and that's their conscience to do that. But if you took that position, for example, you wouldn't go into a court of law and swear to tell the truth. But I think what we're going to see this morning is there's more to it than that. There's a deeper meaning for why uh, James is telling us not to swear. So let's get your Bibles ready, and let's go and look at some scripture that talks about oaths and oath-taking. And there's a plethora of them. I'm just going to give you a, a few of them. Starting off, we'll both look at the Old Testament verses, and then we'll look at the New Testament. Starting off, and you don't have to look these all up if you don't want to, but they're, they're there. I'll give you the reference. In Genesis 21, we see that Abraham swore an oath that he would deal honestly with Abimelech. Abimelech wanted Abraham to swear an oath to God that he would deal honestly with him, and he did. And in Genesis 24, we see again that Abraham makes his servants, Abraham's on his deathbed, and he makes his servants swear to the Lord that they will find a wife for his son Isaac from among their own people, and not from the Canaanites where they were living. Then in Genesis 31, 44, and in 2 Samuel 19, 23, 2 Chronicles 5, 14, and in Nehemiah 
10.29, we see examples of all of these Old Testament figures making swearing oaths of some different kinds to the Lord. We see Jacob, Samuel, David, and in some cases we see the, the entire nation of Israel swearing an oath. And there are even occasions in the scriptures where God specifically tells the people to swear an oath. Look, if you will, at Exodus 22, verse 10. I'll give you a minute to turn there and we'll read that one together. Exodus 22, 10. This is the Lord. If anyone gives a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any other animal to a neighbor for safekeeping, and it dies or is injured, or is taken away while no one is looking, the issue between them shall be settled by the taking of an oath before the Lord, that the neighbor did not lay hands on the person's property. The owner is to accept this and no restitution is required. So we see in this example, the Lord specifically commanding the people that if there's a dispute, they should take an oath before the Lord. Then in Leviticus 19.12, I'll just read this one to you. We read this from the Lord. Thou shalt not steal, you shall not deal falsely, and you shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. That's important. And so profane the name of God. I am the Lord. Then in Deuteronomy 6.10, if you want to look at that one, I'll give you a minute because this one is very important. Deuteronomy 6.10. We read this. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, now look in verse 12. Then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. By him, shall, by him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. So right there, the Lord is telling them, if you're going to swear, it's by my name you should swear. It shouldn't be done falsely, obviously, then you'd be taking the, you'd be profaning the name of God like we read in Leviticus. But God is telling the people to reverence him and to use his name when they swear. So essentially, what, is, what does this mean? It means that if you invoke the name of God and you, you make an oath by the name of God and you break it, you're breaking the third commandment that God gave to us. You are taking the name of your God in vain. That's what that means. To take the name of the Lord in vain primarily means that you've used it inappropriately in an oath. Okay, there's lots of other, other ways you can, you can do that, but that's primary. So it's a very big deal to use the name of God in an oath. And that's why you will see in scriptures that we're going to read here in a minute, 
that the Jews went to these extreme lengths to try to avoid that, but still make the oath. Okay? So we've seen so far these examples, and we've seen examples where God himself swore an oath, like in Deuteronomy 6. And there's another that I'd like to give you in Genesis chapter 22. In verse 16, we read this. By myself have I sworn, declares the Lord, because you, Abraham, have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven. So again, a direct oath sworn by the Lord to bless Abraham. Then in Psalm 132, we see an oath to David. We read this in verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. He says, one of your sons of your body will set on the throne. And then he re- expands on this in 2 Samuel 7, 16. God speaking of David, he says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So you can see, these are just a few, some very significant oaths that the Lord swore in the Old Testament, that the godly man of of the Old Testament swore. So you might think, well, okay, but what about the New Testament, right? Well, let's look at the New Testament. We see, first of all, many examples of references back to all these oaths that we've just read in the Old Testament. For example, in Luke 1, 73, we see the reference to the, to the oath that God swore to Father Abraham. And then in Hebrews chapter 6, we read this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no other greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Again, another reference to the, to the Old Testament promise Expanded a little bit for the New Testament believers as an example. Then we see examples of the Apostle Paul himself after conversion, making oaths and taking vows. For example, in 2 Corinthians 11.31, we see that Paul took a vow of integrity before God that he would do what he said. Right? And in Acts 18.18, you might remember the reference there that Paul had made a vow that included not cutting his hair. And this one is really, I think, particularly striking to me. We see in Revelations chapter 10 that even the angel of God swore an oath. In Revelations 10, 5 through 6, the revelation of John, he says, And then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand, to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. So the angel, giving the the revelation to John, swore this oath. So if we see all these examples of godly men and even angels and God himself swearing an oath, I think there's got to be something more to this directive from James not to swear an oath. Okay, so to set the background. So I think this is a good point for us to jump over to Matthew because James is essentially reiterating the teachings of Jesus. 
So if you have your Bible, flip over to Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Matthew 5.33, we read, Jesus speaking to his disciples, Again you have heard that it was said of old, You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all by heaven, by heaven for it is the throne of God. Some more explanation here. Or by earth, for it is the footstool or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. All right, so we have that. Now look at Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, 16. Jesus is going to... Give us a little more insight here onto, as to why he's bringing this up and why James is bringing this up. Matthew 23, 16. Jesus in this passage is addressing the Pharisees. Okay? Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, Which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So I I ask you, what's the main point of Jesus' woe to the Pharisees here? What's the main point of James saying to avoid oaths? I think it's clear that the Bible supports the use of oaths. So what can it be? What is it that Jesus and James are condemning about oaths? I want to make the case to you today that it's not the oath itself or the institution of the oath, but it's the misuse of the oath. And it's the abuse of the oath. And it's the corruption of the Pharisees, the hypocritical practices of the Pharisees that Jesus and James are condemning. Listen to this And it's ridiculous in a sense that they would try to do this because to try to make an oath that you can't get out of can't be done, is what Jesus is saying. It can't be done. And listen to this article that I found in a Ligonier article, which you know was created by R.C. Sproul. I've slightly paraphrased this just for context. But listen to what it says. It says, Our Creator instituted oaths and vows to safeguard the sanctity of truth. We could see that, right? During the first century, as in our days, oaths and vows were open to abuse by people who enter into the commitments frivolously. The Pharisees addressed this problem by differentiating binding oaths from those that could, could be broken with impunity, or so they thought. 
This only made matters worse. Jesus condemned these Pharisees for explicitly sanctioning such practices. Their intent to get around the law could not work because vows made by the altar in the temple ultimately are made to the one who sanctifies the altar in the temple. Indeed, such oaths are made in the name of the one who created all things. God is ultimately witness to every oath we swear, no matter its form, and a mere change in formula will not enable us to escape his chastisement should we fail to keep our promises, end quote. In Hebrews 14, verse 3, we read this, No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to his eyes, to him whom we must give an account, end quote. So ultimately, we will all give an account to God for everything that we say and everything that we do. So oaths were given to us by God in, the, in creation and in his word to safeguard the truth. We read that from the Sproul quote. He gave it to us to safeguard the truth. It's a good thing, but they were meant to be reserved for solemn occasions and for significant events in our life. Oaths were meant to be done in an honorable and sacred manner, calling upon the name of the Lord as witness because the Lord is the very essence of everything holy and honorable. So I want to give you an example that you'll all be familiar with. Example of marriage. Okay? And taking an oath and a vow at the, at the marriage ceremony. The husband and the wife take an oath to love one another for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and cherish one another till death do us part. Yesterday, my wife and I celebrated our 34th anniversary. And we took our vows 34 years ago uh, yesterday. And I can say to you today that that vow we took seriously. And because of that vow, we've looked back on it all these years. And that vow has actually served as a safeguard for our marriage. And it has, by keeping that vow, it's actually increased our love and our commitment for one another. Amen? So, but what was happening was the people, especially in the biblical times, but today as well, started abusing oaths and making a mockery out of them. And this kind of, it was this kind of foolish and abusive oath-taking that James and Jesus are telling us to avoid. John MacArthur puts it this way, quote, The Pharisees thought of clever ways to try to get out of keeping their promise. They created these sort of non-binding oaths, kind of like crossing your fingers. As long as they didn't use God's name, they felt they could break their oath and it would be okay. But why did they do this? They did it because people were simply not faithful to keep their word. So they to persuade people to believe them, they would make all these oaths, okay? Now we're kind of getting to the heart of the matter. This was a pharisaical practice of appearing to be righteous, but in reality, they were just a bunch of liars. They never intended to keep some of these promises, not really. So the heart of the issue, I think, here is the difference between speaking the truth 
versus deception and lie. It's what's in your heart that comes out. Now, I don't have to do much to try to uh, convince you that the world in which we live in today is, operates in a system of lies, okay? Uh, people don't trust one another, right? And so they expect a lie. And it's been that way since the fall, when the devil, the father of lies, deceived Eve. So we're taught to be skeptical and to watch out for the fake news, if you will. And so the fake religious people, the Pharisees of the day, will built this whole system of fake oaths on the, uh, to, that the Lord just tears down, as he always did. Because God looks on the heart, and Jesus could see their heart. And the things that, that we see today are no different. We may not swear on the temple anymore, or on the altar, or the gold of the temple, but you hear people today say things like, Honest to God, I hope to die, right? I'm really telling the truth this time. Or, you know, I swear on my mother's grave, you know, I'm telling the truth this time. Or I'll do that thing, or that thing. You know, or worse yet, I'll swear, I swear on a stack of Bibles. You've heard that. It's the same today. It's this lightly, frivolously going into an oath to get somebody to believe you. Why? Because they don't trust you. And you're not a person of your word. That's the heart of the matter here. James is once again calling us to be people of the word. Godly character coming out in our lives because we're truly saved. And we're desirous in our hearts to do the right thing. And to say the right things. You've heard the saying, consider the source, right? And that's very, very true and very applicable. When people hear you make a statement or make a claim or make a promise, do they consider the source as being one of integrity? One of a, you are a person of your word. You have a reputation and that reputation alone should be sufficient. That's what James and Jesus are saying. Your yes be yes, your no be no. That's all you should have to give. And so that's why James is telling us to refrain from these other kinds of abusive oaths. Right? And he, throughout his book, has dealt with this topic, the subject of our speech and our words. Right? Because it's so easy to sin with our words. Listen to some of these examples from the earlier chapters. James says, If anyone thinks to be himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. And then he says, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. And he says, don't speak against one another, brothers. And he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother or speaks against the law. Don't speak against your, your brother. And then he says, don't grumble. Grumble being with your mouth and saying things against your brother so that you won't be judged, he says. James over and over again in his epistle has been exhorting us and warning us to be careful with our words. And that's what he's doing here again, once again. He's calling us to integrity. He's calling us to godly character that comes out in godly actions and what we say and what we do to be a person of integrity. Now, I want us to look at one last thing in this verse 
that we, I don't want to overlook. And it's the last part of the verse. The reason that James gives us specifically here to avoid swearing an oath like this. He says, do not swear either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. We read in Hebrews 14 already that nothing is hidden from God and we must give an account to him. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said that on the judgment day, men will be held accountable to God for what every careless word that we say. In the New American Standard Bible and some other versions, instead of the word condemnation, they use the word judgment. And I think I like that a little bit better because we know, and I want to speak to you Christians out here now, you know that for those who are in Christ, Paul says in Romans 8, there's no condemnation. There's no sentence of hell. Right? But there is going to be a judgment. The judgment that we all are going to stand before and we're going to be called to give an account of our lives. And Jesus is going to have his reward there with us. For us that are saved, there's no condemnation. But there is judgment. And that's why James is warning us here. Once again. And then Lying is a serious offense. It's a serious sin. I don't think I have to convince you of that, but listen to Proverbs 12, verse 22. It says that lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. It's an abomination. In Acts, we see an example where Ananias and Sapphira, you remember the story, blatantly lied to the Holy Spirit and the Lord struck them dead. When we lie, we speak the native tongue of the devil. He is the father of lies. And the Bible says that the devil and all liars will ultimately be cast into the lake of fire in Revelation. Again, I want to be extra careful here. I'm not, James knows we can't be perfect with our tongue. He already said that earlier in, in his letter. He said the, perf, the person who is able to bridle his tongue perfectly is a perfect person. And we're not going to be able to do that. We're not perfect. There'll be times when we misspeak or we speak untruths. But as Christians, that should not be the way of our heart. Right? It should be the exception rather than the rule. But we thank God for his grace in the times when we do sin with our tongues. But if your natural way in your life is to lie, to get what you want or to deceive somebody... I want to suggest to you today that you're not genuinely saved and converted. And if that's your case, you need to repent. You need to turn to Christ. You need to ask him to give you a new heart, a regenerated heart, a regeneration of your spirit so that within you, as a true Christian, you desire to do right and to speak truth. I remember before I was saved, it didn't really bother me to tell a lie. And you see this, right, in the world. We see it every day. People trying to deceive other people for their own advantage. They have no integrity. And it didn't really bother me. But then when I got saved, I couldn't tell a lie without being convicted. That's because the Holy Spirit convicts us and because God has given us 
by being born again, a new heart that desires to do what is right and to please God. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we're almost done, says godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. For an unregenerate person, they're only sorry if they get caught. But us Christians, we're convicted. We were convicted to do, tell the truth and to be honest and to do the works that God has called us to do. So I want to make one last point now that we've covered the verse by way of application to y'all. And it's this. Let me encourage you today that it is okay to say no. It is okay to say no to something that someone asks you to do. In fact, it is better to let your yes be yes and your no be no and not take on a commitment that you cannot keep. Okay? That's okay. It's better for you. It's better for your reputation. It's better for the glory of God for you to say no to something than to make a promise and break it. All right? Because we're so often tempted, I think, to please other, to please people and to want to be, to, you know, we have that bit of Pharisee in us to want to be looking better than we really are. Sometimes you need to say no and you need to just be faithful to the things that you've committed. I'm not discouraging you from going out there and taking on new commitments and doing good things. I'm just encouraging you to be very careful and honest with people and the things that you do commit to, you stick to, okay? So, in closing, I think the Bible does support the appropriate use of oaths. There are times when oaths are a good thing, such as at marriage vows, ordinations, or in the court of law. But we must remember that what we promise, and indeed every word that we speak, needs to be done in a careful and godly way. As sinful people living in a fallen world, we have a penchant for breaking our promises. So we must be very careful. So today, if you think of a promise that you've made that you haven't yet fulfilled, I encourage you to go and fulfill it. If you think of a promise today that you've broken, I encourage you to try to make amends, that we will be known as people, godly men and women of integrity, but isn't it good to know that as much as we struggle with keeping our promises, God always fulfills his promises. The Bible tells us it is impossible for God to lie. He keeps all of his promises. He kept all those promises that he made to Abraham and David in the Old Testament. And when we look back on those promises, we see that he was not only faithful to them, he fulfilled those promises for our benefit today. He ultimately fulfilled those promises by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be the Savior and to die on the cross for our sins. If you're in Christ today, the Bible tells you that you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to that promise. If you are in Christ today, you have a king from David sitting on the throne today. Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises to King David. Today, he sits on the throne of God as King of kings and Lord of lords. And because God is faithful to always keep his promises, today 
you can bet your life on the promise that Jesus said, I am coming again. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is returning to this earth. And when he comes, his reward will be with him. So I encourage you, be patient in your suffering. Be faithful in what you say and do as unto the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word today. And we thank you so much, Lord God, that it doesn't depend on us. Though we try our best, it doesn't depend on the good works that we can do, but it depends on the grace of God and the grace of God alone. But Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us, your people, to be faithful men and women, to do what we say we're going to do, and to be very, very careful with our words so that we would never ever profane the name of God, but that when people look at us, they would see a child of God and that they would see that we give honor and glory to you in our lives, in everything we say and do. We thank you, Lord God, this morning. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.